Not since Bob Lazar came forward in the late 1980s with his fascinating claim of seeing UFOs stored in secret hangars at Area 51 have we heard such massive UFO news than that from Air Force veteran turned whistleblower David Grush regarding the U.S. government's deeply covert UFO or UAP crash retrieval programs. Lost ancient technology, or what some might call forbidden technology, to me is the intersection between UFOs and ancient megalithic architecture. Because both, it seems, were created with some form of this lost or forbidden technology. So when I think of historic UFO accounts like Roswell, uh, I can't help but wonder if this wasn't one of the UFO crashes that the government retrieved as whistleblower David Grush claims. So in this episode, I am going to recount or retell the Roswell story. Now, leading up to the Roswell event, there began to be many UFO sightings throughout the world. During World War II and shortly after, there were sightings by military personnel of flying objects that no one even had a basis for at the time, most notably over Scandinavia where they became known as ghost rockets. I believe something like 2,000 sightings alone were reported between 1946 and 47 over and around Scandinavia. Then there was the Kenneth Arnold sighting in June of 1947 in Washington state. He was a private pilot flying near my backyard around Mount Rainier, where he claimed to see a series of nine shiny-shaped saucer objects flying at over 1,000 miles per hour. This was the first post-World War II sighting in the United States that garnered nationwide news coverage and is credited with being the first of the modern era of UFO sightings. The phrase flying saucer was soon born after. Now, in the annals of American UFO history, few incidents have inspired as much fascination and speculation as the one in Roswell, New Mexico in the summer of 1947. And more than 70 years later, the incident remains a defining aspect of American pop culture. The town of Roswell boasts a UFO museum and a research center. It's got a flying saucer-inspired McDonald's alien-themed streetlights, and even an extraterrestrial family stranded in a broken-down UFO on the side of State Route 285 looking for a jump start. Now, as historian Richard Dolan points out, for about the first 30 years or so after the Roswell event happened, almost no one actually knew about it. This is because of the quick cover-up performed by the military that ensued, which we're going to get into. It was only because of the hard work of a few people in the 70s and 80s, like Stanton Friedman, who went and tracked down the eyewitnesses who were still alive at the time and captured their memories, that the story of Roswell was resurrected. And the memories of these eyewitnesses all seem to tell a very different story than the government explanation of a crashed weather balloon. It all starts on Saturday, July 5th, 1947. Mac Brazel, foreman of the Foster Ranch, located approximately 75 miles north of Roswell, New Mexico, finds strange debris scattered across a very large area of pasture. 
he began to pick up various pieces of this debris that was unusually lightweight, yet very strong. There was what looked like metal and this foil-like material. He would later try to cut and burn some of the debris, but with no success. On Sunday, July 6th, Mac Brazel brings some of this debris to Roswell Sheriff George Wilcox. George Wilcox sends out two deputies to investigate, and they report back to him that they found an area that looked burned and glass-like. Now, this lends to excessive heat. We'll get more into that in a bit. Uh, Sheriff Wilcox then called the Roswell Army Airfield, which was home to the 509 Bombardier Group. Now, this was the same group responsible for dropping the atomic bomb over Japan to end World War II. This 509 group was the only unit in the world, I believe, that had the ability to drop nuclear weapons at this time. So if you are looking for a unit to do an elite secret task, this was the unit. This unit was commanded by Colonel William Blanchard, who later went on to become a four-star general in the 1960s. On Monday, July 7th, Colonel Blanchard sent a team to investigate the site led by Captain Jesse Marcel, along with officers Sheridan Cabot and Master Sergeant William Rickett. These three met with this rancher foreman, Mac Brazel, and went out and visited the crash site with him. The debris field was about three quarters of a mile long and approximately 300 feet wide. There was a gouge in the ground that was about 500 feet long. Other reports indicate that the trees were clipped. Jesse Marcel noticed debris as thin as newsprint, but incredibly strong. Apparently, the debris could not even be dented by a sledgehammer. And the foil-like material could be crumpled up, but would return to its original shape without wrinkles. Jesse Marcel noticed I-beams with odd symbols on them. Years later, Marcel told investigator Stanton Friedman this debris was definitely not a plane, missile, or a weather tracking device. He said, quote, it was something he had never seen before or since. It certainly wasn't anything built by us, end quote. Captain Jesse Marcel loads up his vehicle with debris that night. And on his way back to his house, he makes a detour to his own home about 2 a.m. He wakes up his wife and his son, Jesse Jr., who was 11 years old at the time. And he shows them some of the pieces of the debris. And he says that this is from a crashed UFO. Jesse Jr. would go on to remember this for the rest of his life. Meanwhile, military police went to Sheriff Wilcox's office and they collected the debris that Rancher Brazel had left there. So it appears that the cover-up is already underway. On Tuesday, July 8th, Jesse Marcel and Cabot go to Roswell Army Base with two truckloads of debris. Base Commander Colonel Blanchard notifies Jesse Marcel that he is to take the debris to the Air Force headquarters in Fort Worth, Texas, and meet with a general named Roger Ramey. 
So at this point, it appears that Marcel and Blanchard believe they have actual pieces of this flying disc. Now, at some time around noon that day, Blanchard says to his public information officer, a gentleman named Lieutenant Walter Hout, send out a press release stating basically what has happened and what we have. So Hout goes to the local KGFL radio station and they send out like a Western Union to radio stations, newspapers. It reaches the associated press wire and then it's like all hell breaks loose. The Roswell Daily Record headlined the story, quote, RAAF captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region, end quote. So you can only imagine what's happening just in the town of Roswell alone as the Roswell Daily Record puts out this story. About three hours after the announcement, uh, Jesse Marcel is in Fort Worth, Texas, in the office of this General Roger Ramey. And he's got the debris with him. Now, according to Marcel's later testimony, he and this General Roger Ramey leave the General's office together for a period of time. When they come back into the office, the debris, original debris he, he brought there is gone. And it's been switched out. In place of the original debris was now a ripped up weather balloon scattered all over the floor. General Roger Ramey had an AP reporter in the room taking photographs. And this reporter, I believe, is the one who broke the other story just three hours after the original story of the UFO crash that says this was really just nothing more than a weather balloon. And they make Jesse Marcel pose with the scraps of the weather balloon and basically take the fall for being fooled. Around the same time, rancher Mac Brazel was placed under military guard for several days, if not up to about a week. Why would a rancher be placed under military guard if it was all just a weather balloon? Now, a local Roswell resident named Robert Ridge was hunting around this crash site back in 2004 when he unearthed what's become known as the Roswell Rock. Now, when you look at this rock, it's a small brownish rock with a design that protrudes from the top of it and features circles with what looks like shapes of the sun and uh, crescent moons in the center. And these are precision carved. Uh, this thing has megalithic properties. You can see videos of it spinning uh, both clockwise and counterclockwise with the use of magnets. Now, this rock was found near the skip site. What is the skip site? Well, there was the skip site where the craft first made contact with the ground, left this massive debris field, and then finally came down at the crash site. So was this rock possibly thrown from the craft when it hit the ground at the skip site? Did the military somehow miss uh, finding this rock during their months long cleanup. The crazy thing is, is that there was a 120 foot long crop circle found in England in 1996 that featured the exact same design. Now, some have theorized that this is just an elaborate hoax using a sandblasting technique through the use of a computer generated stencil cutting and sandblasting. However, when a local stone carver uh, was given a chance to replicate this Roswell rock 
um, on an episode uh, from the History Channel, I believe, using this technique, uh, his re- recreation was clearly inferior when you see both of both of the rocks side by side. Now, this skip site is also known as the Ragsdale site because a guy named Jim Ragsdale and his girlfriend were camping there supposedly that night and saw a craft uh, come in and were some of the first on the scene. Uh, some reports indicate that they even witnessed seeing bodies. Now, earlier I mentioned one of the members of the 509 Bombardier Group named Bill Rickett, who was sent out with Jesse Marcel to uh, investigate the crash site. This Bill Rickett, he wasn't only at the crash scene with Marcel, but he told researchers later that he went out again and escorted a guy named Dr. Lincoln LaPaz, who at the time was a world-renowned meteor expert to the crash site. La Paz was apparently hired by the military to find out what the speed and trajectory was of the craft when it crashed. La Paz also said that the sand had been turned glass-like due to landing and takeoff. La Paz was on record for saying that he actually believed there were several objects that had come down that night at Roswell. Now, Mac Brazel, the foreman of the ranch, who was one of the first on scene at the crash site, he had a son named Bill Brazel. Bill Brazel said that years after the crash, he was at a bar telling some of his friends about this foil-like debris that you could crumple up and that would return to its normal shape. And then he let them know that he actually still had some of it. A few days later, the military arrived at the ranch and said they had learned about his possession of some of the debris and they asked him for it. Uh, Reluctantly, uh, Bill Brazel gave it to him. Jesse Marcel, the intelligence officer named in the initial press report, had a son named Jesse Jr. According to Jesse Jr., uh, who wrote a book, I believe, called The Roswell Legacy, he talks about how his father uh, that night brought some of the UFO wreckage home at 2 a.m. And he allowed his son to handle this debris uh, before he took it to the base. Now, Marcel Jr. wrote that the material was metallic and, quote, I could see what looked like writing. At first, I thought of Egyptian hieroglyphs, but there were no animal outlines or figures. They weren't mathematical figures either. They were more like geometric symbols, squares, circles, triangles, pyramids, and the like, end quote. Marcel Jr. was 11 years old at the time. I find that part so interesting that he saw these symbols that reminded him of what looked almost like Egyptian hieroglyphs. A gentleman named Glenn Dennis was a mortician in Roswell in 1947. He remembers getting several calls in July of 1947 from the Roswell Army Airfield Mortuary Officer who wanted to know about how to get her medically sealed airtight caskets. And he also asked him how small uh, could he get these caskets. Barbara Duger was the granddaughter of Roswell Sheriff George Wilcox. She claimed that her grandmother, the sheriff's wife, uh, told her that after the crash, military police uh, showed up and told the couple, and again, this is 
Sheriff George Wilcox, uh, that the entire family could be killed if they were to ever talk about this event. Barbara Duger also said that, I believe her grandmother told her that her grandpa George had gone out to the site and saw four space beings with large heads and suits that were silk-like, and one of the beings was alive. There was a general named Thomas Dubois, and this was General Roger Ramey's chief of staff in 1947. He was very involved in the whole uh, crash and was seen in photos with Ramey and Marcel. In 1991, he was interviewed and stated that the whole balloon thing was a cover story. He made it very clear that the entire cover-up was being managed by a general named Clements McMullen from the Pentagon. McMullen made it clear that this crash was above top secret. And wouldn't you know, it was later discovered that all of the administrative records and outgoing messages from the Roswell Army Airfield from 1945 to 1949 were inexplicably destroyed, disappeared, vanished. So if the Roswell event was just something to do with a crashed weather balloon, why were the trees clipped around the crash site? Why was the ground gouged? Why was the sand glass-like due to excessive heat? Why did the army incarcerate rancher Mac Brazel for almost a week? Why were people threatened with their lives? Why did several witnesses state that they saw small beings? Why were all these records destroyed? If it was just a crashed weather balloon, why is this story still alive over 70 years later? Even though so few people to this day actually believe the mainstream explanation of Roswell being this crashed weather balloon, sadly, this tired narrative is still promoted to this day by the establishment guardians of truth. <laughs> 